Not everybody who's in the 100 has a science degree. There are people who have artistic backgrounds. We have someone who's an um, accomplished violinist. We have a, uh, a pop rock singer from Japan. You know, there's, there's, a, um, there's an artist from the Philippines. It's a, extraordinary. How, how do we see ourselves? How do we represent ourselves uh, through, through our culture? And I think art plays an important mm. part of that. That's Diane McGrath, sustainability researcher, biohacker, and possible future Martian. Diane is currently one of 100 people shortlisted globally to the Mars One Project, an international effort to launch the first humans to Mars in 2031. One way. What would compel someone to leave the Earth forever? Well, I should have some idea. I'm one of the 100 candidates too. My name's Josh Richards, and on the 18th of September 2018, Diane and I joined Professor Chris Daniels on stage at the Bob Hawke Prime Ministerial Centre in Adelaide, and we tried to answer the question that everyone wants answered. Why? You're listening to the Future Martians live event, in conversations with Diane McGrath and Josh Richards, a feature presentation of the University of South Australia, Radio National and Mars One. about to be taped up, or well, it looks like we're setting looks up like we're ready to get to Renee's on we're us. Here, so. Renee's, we're at the Hawk Centre, and this evening we're live for Future Martians. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun, actually, a lot of fun. Yeah, so Chris is going to be talking to us about, well, life on Mars. Everything, Everything. by the sounds of things. We just had a quick look at the questions, and it's, yeah, it's going to be wide-ranging. I know, I know. <laughs> um, who knows how it's going to go? We'll see. It'll be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to questions from the audience as well. Yeah, it's always. Uh, I think we're keeping it fairly short just to, so that it doesn't get too wild. But yeah, I don't think like an hour is going to be enough. No, somehow. absolutely not. Well, we'll um, check in with everyone uh, afterwards and see how it goes. Sounds great. Okay. My name is Jacinta Thompson, and I'm the Executive Director and Events and Exhibitions Producer of the Bob Hawke Prime Ministerial Centre. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is Ghana land and we wish to express our respect for the Ghana people, their elders and ancestors and acknowledge the spiritual and cultural relationship the Ghana people have with their traditional land. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight on behalf of the Hawke Centre and the University of South Australia to hear from our future Martians... Mars One candidates Josh Richards and Diane McGrath as they share how they are preparing for life on the Red Planet. They will be in conversation with the delightful Professor Chris Daniels. Chris is the inaugural director of Cleveland Wildlife Park and is an adjunct professor of biology in the School of Pharmacy and Medical Science here at the University of South Australia. He was educated in zoology at the University of Adelaide and the University of New England. Chris is currently a governor of the World Wildlife Fund, member of the Ocean Science Council of Australia and patron of the Friends of Wurrabinda, the Marine Discovery Centre and the South Australia Junior Field Naturalist Society, among other community and science roles. In October 2016, Chris was appointed a councillor of the Nature Foundation SA and he is also vice chair of the South Australian Parks and Wilderness Board and chair of the International Koala Centre of Excellence Foundation based at Cleveland. Chris has published nine books, a DVD, only one, 
and over 250 scientific and community publications. He's one busy, busy man. So Chris also won the South Australian Premier's Science Award for Communication in 2007 and the Medal for Natural History from the Field Naturalist Society in South Australia in 2010. A very warm welcoming our speakers, Josh, Diane and Chris, to the stage in what promises to be a very fascinating and, I think, fun-filled, hilarious conversation about one-way mission to Mars. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much for that, Jacinta, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and to be part of the Hawke Centre and the fabulous program that Jacinta puts on every year. It's, it's just quite a remarkable. It's one of the most extraordinary things that a university can do. I'm also really struck by Jacinta's Ghana welcome and the connection of the Hawke Centre with Aboriginal people here in the state and across Australia. And one thing to really remember about the Aboriginal acknowledgement is their connection with land and with community. Yet we don't mention sky. And I hadn't actually given much thought to Aboriginal connection with sky until my wife bought me uh, a piece of work from Dean Jungala, an Aboriginal artist from the Northern Territory. And in that, he painted the Aboriginal perspective of the night sky, particularly the Milky Way and the Southern Cross. And it's absolutely extraordinary for its own sake, for its piece of art and for its connection to Aboriginal thought and, and approach. But it also made me realise, of course, that people have been in Australia and across the world looking up at the stars for 50,000 years and wondering, I wonder what it's like up there. And what we have here tonight is two people who are going to find out. <laughs> and that's the incredibly exciting thing about this. So Josh and Diane are about to take off well, in 12 years, about to take <laughs> yeah. off, on the Mars One program, whose goal is it is to establish a human settlement on Mars. And so being the slacker that I am, I went to their website and copied down what this actually meant. And it says on the website, Mars is the stepping stone of the human race on its voyage into the universe. Human settlements on Mars will aid our understanding of the origins of the solar system, the origins of life, and our place in the universe. And as with the Apollo moon landings, a human mission to Mars will inspire generations to believe that all things are possible, anything can be achieved. And so we're going to explore that mission statement tonight. Josh is a physicist, explosives engineer, soldier, comedian, astronaut candidate, and has performed comedy wearing a giant koala suit to confuse audiences <laughs> around the world. It's terrifying. He had trust me, me at koala suit, obviously. Yeah, anyone who dresses up like a koala is a friend of mine. <laughs> Diane McGrath is the director of the sustainability and business consultancy called Food for Thought Consulting Australia and is currently doing a PhD in environmental engineering at RMIT on food waste. She's also a director of the organisation The Open Food Network. So we're going to hear from them and have an exciting conversation. I've got no idea how it's going to go. What I did do was develop five questions and each question has 47 parts. <laughs> we might not get through all that I wanted to say, having had a conversation with the two here. So the way it'll work is that I'm going to ask Diane and Josh to say a little about themselves and why they're going and what were they thinking when they signed up to the Mars One program. Give us a bit of background and a little bit of frame. Then the five topics that we've come up with are choosing the team, leadership, culture and management, number one. Feeding the colony and dealing with waste. Technology, robots and mechanical systems. The effect of one-third gravity, radiation, magnetism and other hazards on human health and well-being. 
and then finding life and impacting the ecology of Mars. We'll get through all of that in about eight minutes, and then that will leave some time for questions from the audience, and then we'll conclude with asking you both what does success look like. Mm. So we'll challenge that there. So let us begin then with phase one of the evening by perhaps inviting you, Diane, to say a few words about yourself. A few words about myself. I'm an ex-South Australian. <laughs> there you go. thought I'd get in there quickly with everybody. Currently doing a PhD, as mentioned by Chris. I've got a passion for sustainability, particularly sustainable food systems, but I've worked in the years for government, pharmaceutical industries and a number of different things. Why? Why would one go to Mars? A number of reasons. The first is around possibility. When we see that there's something so extraordinary that humanity could do together in a united way, then what else could we achieve? Mm. So that was, for me, one of the big draw cards. And then, of course, the opportunity to do something which could show that by living sustainably on Mars, an extraordinarily tiny closed loop, we develop systems and processes and technologies to allow us to live sustainably on this closed loop of Earth. Fantastic. Thank you. Josh? I still maintain that I'm a professional idiot. Uh, <laughs> that has been my, my focus for some time. Apparently spacesuit model as well. I have been very lost through the years. I saw Andy Thomas being selected as Australia's first professional astronaut at the age of seven and spun around to my folks and said, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And they said, unless you became an American, you couldn't. Which is true. To join NASA, you do have to be a US citizen. And so seven-year-old me decided that going to space was impossible. I then looked to my next sort of big role model, which was dad, and eventually went and joined the army and went and did all those other things. I tried a whole bundle of different things, and none of them felt like they were serving a bigger purpose. So my motivation for being involved with this is this is something that's way bigger than me. And it wasn't until I was 27 that I kind of came back to the realisation I'd always wanted to go to space. It was a huge challenge. It was something I wanted to be involved with. I was actually researching a comedy show. That's how I found out about Mars One. <laughs> I'd just finished Edinburgh Fringe for the fourth year in 2012 and I was done with comedy. I was sick of dealing with comedians, sick of dealing with human beings generally uh, and I wanted to leave the planet. And I'd found out during my physics degree, I read a paper by Professor Paul Davies saying the first people going to Mars would probably have to go one way and I thought that was a fantastic idea. And so I decided I wanted to write a comedy show about it. <laughs> I sat down in a little coffee shop in Brighton in the UK just after Edinburgh Fringe in 2012, and I typed Mars One Way into Google, and Mars One had made their first major announcement about three days before. All this news popped up, and I was like, oh, well, I'm not just going to write a comedy show saying we should do this. I'm going to put my hand up and, and volunteer for it. Six years later... <laughs> What went wrong? <laughs> it's still part of it. Somehow some ginger leprechaun is going to Mars, apparently. <laughs> I'm very confused by this, but, yeah. Okay, so there's a little bit of background about you guys. Now, some 200,000 people put their names down. That's right. We've come to 100, of which seven are Australians, but five are Queenslanders, so we, we won't count those <laughs> at all, leaving you two, and that'll come to 24. So could you tell us a bit about the selection process? As you said, over 200,000 started the selection process or application process, and that first stage was a bit like applying pretty much for any job, really. You submit an application and hope you get a, an interview. That's kind of how it went, sort of. <laughs> Slightly different job. But we obviously asked a lot of questions that 
tried to bring out some of the psychological profiling and those different elements about not just why you want to do something so extraordinary, but part of your history that shows cultural diversity, how you've dealt with difficult things, things going wrong and so on. Because things will go wrong on Mars. <laughs> this is not a risk-free mission. <laughs> We've seen enough science fiction exactly, movies. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so they wanted to see you know, who has the right sort of stuff there through that, and that it also included a video application and an application fee as well. And that mm. the application fee was, for us, it was like about 30 something I think dollars. it was like $32, $33. Yeah. Well, I thought... 30 bucks to go to Mars, or yeah. I can't even get it's to the... It's pretty great. Yeah, you can't <laughs> even get to the movies twice for that. <laughs> that was much better value. But, and yet people from developing nations had a, a fee that was GDP-related. So, you know, they, they paid the equivalent of cents kind of thing yeah. to, to apply, and we, was, we paid, you know, dollars, which is fantastic. So it was open to other people as mm. well from, from all backgrounds. So we got through that sort of stage, which was video application and so on, and then the 1,058 of us were around December 2013 were told, congratulations, you've been shortlisted, go have these medical tests done, which is the same sort of medical test that I understand NASA put their initial mm. candidates through. And commercial pilots as and well. Like pilots. it's a very, so it's, it's not extreme, mm-hmm. yeah. but it, it's thorough. It's, it, it is yeah. thorough. So there was everything from ECGs to, to vision tests. It had to be ticked off to being you know, mentally sound. So was, was age an issue? Uh, no, actually. It's, the oldest person that's been to space has been 77. A few of us who are slightly more mature have asked the head of selection, is there an age limit? And he, he said, no, there's a health limit. So it doesn't matter how old you are, if you're healthy, we're still able to contribute to society. Mm-hmm. Just because we have a bigger number against our name, it doesn't mean we can't contribute in different ways. So that's, that's the critical thing. And I understand during the training program as well, they would be giving us mental and health tests as well to make sure we still maintain good health throughout that program, to make right. sure we're healthy. So we went through that. that. That trimmed us down again to 700-odd, and then 660 were invited to interview. Imagine interviewing 660 people. Yeah, pass. Yeah, yeah, tap out. There's so, one guy that did it too. Like yeah, written, one Dr. Norbert Kraft interviewed all 660 people. It's oh ridiculous. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. So he, and he did that, of course, through Skype from around the world. And I strategically made sure I was um, being interviewed towards the latter end. Because you remember those you just meet first and those you meet last. And in the middle, it's like, yeah, it's really, you really got to stand out. I was in the first two so days. It's the yeah. university's <laughs> got talent. Yeah. Not the university. The university's got the university talent. The university's got talent. It's sort of... T- type project, yeah, so yeah. that would have been a fairly short interview. It was, it? roughly about 15 minutes, all of us were asked the same questions, there were eight questions, four of them were technical and four were more personal about motivations and things like that, so they were trying to work out, do you understand the risks, do you really know what this mission is about and are you the right person for this mission, show us you're a good candidate. From that they selected the hundred of us who, who are left now. There's been a few people that have pulled out here and there and others stepped in that were maybe the 101st or 102nd. Oh. And that's kind of where we are now. Yeah. And I suppose the next phase for us is we take those hundred people and we force them through really painful business team building type activities. Uh, <laughs> just punish them for five days. It's basically what it is. Like yeah. it is get the groups together and see how you solve problems. There's a lot of parallels with the way that the SAS Carter course operates mm. in that you're given zero feedback. You are just set the challenge and you do it and you don't know if you did well. You don't mm. know if you did terribly. You just do it. And your ability to continue on without having feedback is actually a critical element in the whole assessment process. 
when they're coming down to the 24, are mm. they looking for 24 Bruce Willises or are they mm. looking for a diversity of talents? And yeah. is, is there actually an end game to what they want in the, the makeup or is it fluid? The diversity is really important. In fact, leading up to this final stage or two stages of selection, they've asked us to self-organise into 10 diverse teams of 10 that are gender age and culturally diverse. Mm -hmm. So they really want to see, can we work well with others? Can, do you share your toys, really? Yeah. <laughs> so that rules out Bruce Willis. Yeah. It does, it does, I'm afraid. Yeah. So that does make a big difference. I mean, we know through a lot of research in psychology that when you have diversity, you have better decision-making. We've seen even in space flight crews yeah. that, that gender-balanced crews perform better than um, single-gender crews. We had a bit of a conversation before this and talked about young male engineers being quite challenging human beings at times. <laughs> um, and if you get a group of them together, they can be especially so. And unfortunately, especially <laughs> the kind of the Mercury and Gemini astronauts mm. early yeah. on, they were picked as being test pilots. They were picked because mm. they were the best of the best of the best. And if mm. you get told you're the best of the best, you kind of become a bit of an A-type jerk. That's <laughs> right. That's sort of the, the right stuff approach, yeah. which is, is great if you're a single test pilot and a By yourself. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So that actually raises the big issue then around leadership. And is there a captain or, mm. you know, are you looking to develop your own leadership model and people who lead by following all those... It all varies. So rather than trying to apply a single approach and saying this is the correct way to do it, the biggest benefit of having that huge amount of diversity is you have people from all different backgrounds looking at the same problem and instead of all of them looking at it like a test pilot and solving it this particular way, uh -huh. everyone looks at it from different perspectives and everyone has the opportunity to share their perspective on how to solve a particular problem. So you actually come up with best, most unique solutions to things rather than just what's been drilled into you previously. And you're not competing against each other, you're coming up and collaborating. One of the things Mars One has mentioned that during the training program, once the, the crews have been selected after, after this process, and there'll be 12 to 24, and they'll be in teams of four, they want those crews to develop their own decision-making processes. So, and going back to school and learning political systems, social structures and so forth, to work out what might this look like? There's no reason why we have to have what we have today yeah. on this planet when we go to another one. That's a really interesting approach. You're not necessarily thinking about taking a culture, no. a particular culture, a particular philosophy, and delivering it to Mars, which has been the traditional approach to colonising or occupying mm. countries for the whole history of humankind. You might come up with your own culture. We, we really need to develop our own culture. Like, there's a lot of discussion about Americans being the first on Mars or whoever being. This idea that we're human and we are actually have an opportunity to develop Martian culture that's influenced by things like the reduced gravity, the kind of environment that we live in, the reduced amount of sunlight we're being exposed to because we're half the distance further away from mm. the sun. There's all these factors that are going to shape who we are, and so we actually need to form our own Martian culture rather than trying to apply some sort of archetype that we've brought from Earth with us. I even think that language may evolve mm. in an interesting way as well. I mean, anybody who's moved here to Australia or to another country and, and has to learn a new language will often find that there isn't a way to express something in their own language, in English. It's like, oh, it's, it's missing something. And I'm sure with, when people get to go and live on Mars, we'll experience things that there really aren't the words for in our own Earth languages. 
But that presents some really interesting challenges too, because mm. as you grow apart from earth culture, and this has happened to colonies through the history of time too, they then become separate from it and mm. often want independence. And as you say, you might have your own jive-talking Martian language. <laughs> there can become tensions between yeah. Earth and Mars. Mind you, we've got seven and a half billion people and there'll be 24 of you. Numbers so. is definitely stacked in your <laughs> I quite like that idea. I actually like the idea that there potentially would be a conflict because in many ways it would bring Earth together. Yeah. So mm. that idea of, like, we, again, discussed it a little bit earlier on, talking about folks colonising the US and becoming American and establishing an American culture mm. in response to English culture and then blending in with the French, blending in with all these different aspects, we have an opportunity to essentially help Earth cross some of those national boundaries because we're looking at things interplanetary rather than which patch of dirt you were born on or where you mm. came from. You're actually talking about which planet you come from. So by being really multicultural, you also prevent the, the flip side of that, which is you take one particular culture yes. and then you preserve it. Yeah. Um, in fact, like the Amish or the, the Boers in South yes. Africa, for example, which have held on to a particular aspect of culture when the world has continued to change. That's right. Is that, is that why the multicultural or part of the reason? Part of it, and also that part of the... It the, works better too. It, it yeah. works better yeah. for decision-making. And it's, if we're going to be establishing a new outpost in our solar system on behalf of humanity, it should look like humanity. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't just all come from one nation and, and look the same in the mirror. It, it needs to look like the extraordinary diversity of the, the people in this room or, or anywhere else. Yeah. The next part there, of course, is that there's a lot of resources, Earth mm. resources, particularly financial resources. And one of my colleagues who's here in the audience commented that when man first walked on the moon in 69, an American black activist produced a song called Whitey on the Moon, which was effectively an anthem around why we're watching a white man, as you pointed out, a mm. white engineer stomping around the moon while there's still very significant disharmony here and disadvantage and, and a massive set of issues here. Your views on that? There's a couple of aspects to it. Like the financial argument is an interesting one. The mission that we're talking about is projected at being $6 billion US. I suspect it will grow beyond that. I think it'll probably be closer to 10, maybe 15. Mm -hmm. But from their projected costs at the moment, looking at $6 billion, that's a lot of money mm -hmm. until you talk about how Australia spent $15 billion on alcohol in 2015 or how we talk about spending $34.5 billion on defence each year or the US spending $800-plus billion. Or how um, much does it cost for even just the rights to watch football? Yeah. You can watch two seasons of footy on telly or get to Mars. So you've got to be very careful about either-oring it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it shouldn't be an either-or. It shouldn't no. be like, why are we wasting money on this when we can do this? It's like, mm. will we somehow yeah. always find enough money to buy guns and build bombs? <laughs> like, why is that always a thing of why do we take from hospitals, schools and things like space exploration mm. but quite happily give it to... And I say this as a former soldier, served with three different arms of the armed services... Why do we dump so much money into defence? What are we so scared of? But yeah. you raise a good point about that, that period in 1969, you know, July 1969, when man, and it was man, and we'll, we can yes. get into that a bit later, there hasn't been a woman past Earth's orbit yet, when they landed on the moon, and anyone that was alive then will tell you where they were. Like I can yes. see people nodding in the room here today. They, they were probably watching it around the TV at school or, or mm. in front of a shop window. And, and people in other nations are saying too, it was a moment that united humanity mm. or incited humanity in this instance too with this, this gentleman that, yep. that wrote the song. Yes. So 
it was something that quite extraordinary. Wow. And sometimes it's worth doing something quite extraordinary to bring that sort of unity of humanity <coughs> for a moment and we can do something bigger than ourselves. Yes. And I guess we've seen that with the rescue of the, the soccer boys in the caves in exactly. Thailand, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Or again, at United. Mm. Okay, now we get into the nitty-gritty, because the other big question that my colleagues and friends have immediately asked relates to the issues around feeding the colony and dealing with waste. So the big question is, are you choosing travel companions for their tax? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that every time I go and speak to a year two class, that shameless, like year ones mm. don't know that death is a thing yet. Year threes seem to have figured out that you don't ask someone about dying. Year twos are like, if someone <laughs> dies, will you, will eat, you them? eat them? Every time. <laughs> Well, it's going to be an interesting thing to consider as well. I mean, we will have a very closed-loop system, yes. food system, but nutrient system too. It's not like there's a Bunnings over the next crater if I run out of fertiliser. So we're kind of a bit stuck there. So we need to make sure that our nutrient cycle is maintained. Mm. Mm. Anything that's removed from that cycle is removed from the cycle for all of us. Yes. So that's an yeah. important point to think about. What happens when, when somebody does pass away on Mars... They pass away having consumed calcium, magnesium, phosphorus. It's all of these minerals yep. and, uh, and other nutrients that are then no longer part of the system. Mm. And so mm. does that put risk to the, the rest of the community there if that's not reintroduced? So are you planning to take food with you or are you planning to grow it? In which case that raises the, the issue of how many plants and animals yeah. you take with you. I mean, clearly you're not going to be able to pack too many cows. No, that would be awkward in the spaceship. One of the things that there was a fair bit of criticism about Mars One back in 2014 mm. regarding an MIT study that was looking at plant growth and the idea of producing plants in order to sustain us. They were working on 50 square metres per person. You can reduce that through vertical horticulture and all sorts of different things, mm -hmm. but one of the things they were concerned about was the oxygen that they would produce would potentially produce an explosive environment inside the habitat or you just put all that stuff in a separate chamber to where your people are. There's always solutions to all this stuff. Yep. I know we're talking about taking several years of packet food, like army ration packs, yeah, two which years is worth. horrifying to think about. <laughs> um, two years of living on food in a tube. Yeah, pass. Yeah. Hard, yeah. But I know that we're talking about yeah. growing food. The current concept is that Mars wanted to propose the idea of growing mostly plant-based food uh, in hydroponics and supplementing that with insects and algae, mm -hmm. uh, and which is a, a fabulous way to get nutrient density in a small amount of space. I mean, and insects, I mean, critical part of the food system yeah. and very yeah. tasty, very tasty. I've been eating them for a few years now. I just well, we, we actually had a, a, an insect festival, uh, food festival here at the museum. Where, oh, fantastic. Where a local chef produced ants and crickets, as you yeah. said, locusts, um, meal patties, yeah, and those yeah. sorts of things. So they're high in protein and nutrients. Well, you talked about waste before as well. And, mm. and without mm. insects, we can't break down organic matter in the same way too. So insects are part of that, I guess, breaking down our compost to get down to the nutrients that can then be absorbed again by plants. So microbes, insects, they all play a role in that. So it's, it's helpful for the nutrient system uh, and mm. also for pollination mm. and tasty. I just watched Aliens last night. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> fabulous. But, uh -huh. but crazy Sigourney Weaver nearly blew everything by chasing the cat. Mm. And we have always taken companion animals. Mm. And if you're going to a place like Mars, which has nothing, no connection, losing sense of place is very disturbing for people. And Adelaide's a good example where we have blackbirds and sparrows and things from, from England because people wanted some remembrance. Mm. Would you think of companion animals as opposed to 
food service or lifestyle. There's a few good precedents, not necessarily on the American side of space exploration, but especially in Russia. BIOS 3 in particular had a, had a puppy. And from a lot of the research into in terms of people living alone and maintaining psychological well-being, it is a very clear winner for the dogs versus cats. Cats will lift someone if they're depressed, but they won't lift their mood. They'll just neutralise it whereas dogs will actually actively boost someone's mood. So taking a dog along is actually a potential. There's then other things like having a hypogenic dog and all sorts of different factors that build into it. There's um, even just plant life too. Yeah. I mean, we see in Antarctica the people that... Talking that, to plants. You talk to plants. They do that because there's a small unit where some of the, in the Australian Antarctic Division where they grow some of their own food in a, uh, in a small indoor chamber, so hydroponics. Mm-hmm. And so people love to go in there and just be a part of nature there. So I suspect that that's going to be a place when people actually want to connect that it, it'll go down to where the garden is, so to speak, and maybe there'll be people who have pet crickets. Who knows? Yeah. Pet crickets. This is going to be quite a, <laughs> an interesting settlement. But it is, you know, and I suspect mm. that the ability to get away and plants mm. provide, and we now know that about, about nature improves health outcomes. Indeed. So there are all of those other benefits necessarily above just the, the serving of immediate yeah. food. Japanese forest um, mm. bathing to that sort mm. yeah. um, Even you know, bonsai and those mm. sorts of things. Indeed. So that's kind of the food aspect, of course. Then there's the, the packaging and the other forms of waste mm. and waste management. We'll be very sensible about this. I mean, that's one of the challenges on, on living on Mars, when you can't have resupply. It's part of the reason why traditional space agencies have really struggled with a lot of this Mars planning stuff, because when they start talking about supplies, they start talking about applying the exact same approach that they've got for resupplying the space station mm. to try and do it 56 million kilometres away, it, the, the logistic chain doesn't work because, mm-hmm. in many cases, because the, the approach to life support systems and the way they package things up, it doesn't transfer. There's a totally different mindset to having something that will keep people alive for 10 years mm-hmm. without being serviced on the surface of another planet versus something that you can get spare parts up to every three months. You really don't don't want to waste anything that no. is man-made. No. It's got to be able to be reused, recycled, repurposed. Heavier, simpler, and easier to repair, as opposed yes. to being really refined, almost like jet engine type stuff. You really want something that you can put anything into, and it will work regardless, rather than being this finely tuned piece of machinery that could break if the slightest thing goes out of place. I think so we'll probably control. move towards philosophies that are almost mm-hmm. like ye olde worldy. Mm-hmm. Things that you know, our grandparents and, and so forth, and our parents used to use or, or have, like things that were robust. Yep. They bought their own bags to the shops like we have been doing here in Adelaide for eight or ten years now. See how they do it down south? Back in a so that really moves on to the third yeah. bit, which is the technology, the systems, the, the, the mechanics that you, you need to have there. And what you're really arguing is that you need something that's reliable, not something that's perfect. Mm. Definitely, yes. yeah. So you'll leave the Mars rover and you'll take a VW. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, the, a lot of the design that's going into the rovers that we're talking about, yeah. a lot of folks are getting quite upset about because it's heavier, it's yep. simple, it's basically a dumb rover that is tough to yeah. do things that other things haven't been able to do in the past, and it is... It's basically the antithesis of design from what we've seen from aerospace traditionally, and it, mm. a lot of folks don't like it. <laughs> Your website actually said, well, are you going to be having nuclear power? Are you going to be using mm. cutting technology? And you're not. You'll use solar. Solar's more reliable. If you look at going to nuclear, mm. there's a whole raft of issues, not just on regulation, but actually in terms of the efficiency. We can take flexible, thin-film solar panels, roll them out, 
and the weight that's involved with that is considerably less than, say, taking a portable nuclear reactor. It will produce a lot less power, and you have to be concerned about dust storms. Everyone freaks out about dust storms. Sweep them off. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not complex. There's a lot of challenges that folks fixate on that actually have quite simple, simple solutions. solutions to them. It's just that they're not the most refined engineering yeah. solution. They're just someone getting a brush. Yep. Not so sexy. Yeah. The first thing that popped into my mind too when I was thinking about technology is, well, you've got to have a robot because every science fiction movie has a robot <laughs> in it. Um, and we talked about the bubble-headed booby from Lost in Space. You know, it's great. But do you think you need robots? Do you need mechanical assistance? Like I suspect we'll probably end up using drones. Yeah. Drones will oh, be a big part yeah. of uh, Martian exploration, especially with COSPAR's guidelines of where you can and can't go on Mars and... Um, planetary protection. Yep. So, you know, there, there are elements of the, the planet that are out of bounds, essentially, for, for human exploration, so that we don't accidentally contaminate that planet, so we protect it. But it doesn't mean we can't explore it in other ways, so can we use drones for that? The other one is uh, the landing modules that we're talking about using, the footprint that they could potentially land in is about 10 kilometres, and so you need to be able to physically move these modules right. together and basically have them all hooked up. So we're talking about using a couple of larger rovers to drag them into place, connect everything up together, and make sure that all the systems check out before people launch. So there's actually mm. a fully functioning colony there set up by rovers and robots before anyone's getting in a module heading to, heading right. to Mars. Fantastic. This is so exciting. <laughs> OK, so you've got there, you've got your drones, you've got your VW, it's all <laughs> sort of kind of set up, little yellow beetle there, and, um, charging around. And you two have arrived, and you've fallen in love. What you've decided to do is make a baby. Baby, yeah. <laughs> the first okay. part. So, you, <laughs> okay. So um, there's a number of things here about the, the physiology that you, you will undergo and the physiology of subsequent generations. Is the, the Mars One program thinking about intergenerational stuff? I can't stuff? think of anything worse, honestly. Can you imagine having a three-year-old in something that's basically akin to a nuclear submarine? It's horrifying. <laughs> Yeah. I know. We're not planning on having kids. You mentioned before there's a few issues with physiology. Yes. So being 38% earth gravity, what's that going to do to your bone structure? What's that going to do to a developing child's bone structure in mm. particular? We've seen from experiments on the space station that rats in particular struggle to fertilise, to actually have cells form in the first place because we need to know which way's up and down. Plants need to know, they need at least 10% of Earth's gravity to work out which way's down, so they develop a root structure. That's right. Uh, every aspect of our biology has grown around the magnetic forces that we have here, Absolutely. the radiation that we have here, yeah. and the gravity. And when we say we, most of his work has been done on men and their effect. That's absolutely right. Do we know right. anything about the we effect on females? We know very, very little about what would happen for a woman mm. and when it comes to being not just on Mars but also in space. Only about 10% of astronauts yeah. have been female. And obviously they've only been up in, into the, what was Skylab originally and uh, now the um, ISS and the like. Mm. So, you know, those early people that get to go to Mars... Mm they will be true pioneers in many senses, uh, both to understand genetically what will mm. occur, the sort of epigenetics that might change we touched on earlier. But when it comes to conception, how would a, would a woman be able to carry? Would, how would she mm. deal with, with that increased radiation exposure on Mars? Yeah. And, and you know, it's just a lot, of, a lot of unknowns. I mean, Mars One has said they don't want any, any of the crews having kids for quite some time. And they want to see with maybe animal husbandry, with small 
you know, some of the smaller species. Start with the crickets. Yep. Start with crickets. Well, they better yeah. be able to breed because we're going to have to eat them. There have been yeah. a lot of animals in space, oh. you know, dog, everything's well, fine. Fish adapt really well fish. because they're used to floating around in yeah, zero-g. It's, it's very so, true. But, and they did a really interesting study on spiders, making mm. the spiders webs, and they yeah. didn't work well because without the gravity, they couldn't get the, the direction of the webs right. So yeah. there's a whole mass of challenges, which, of course, brings us from spiders into the psychological aspects of, mm. of being there as well. So how has the program started to prepare you for the... We've talked about it in terms of, of lack of sense of place, of companion animals, mm. of anything to recognise... In a sense, it's sort of community loneliness, if not individual loneliness. Plus, you're all jammed in together. <laughs> so you can do certain elements to try and prepare people, but at the end of the day, you've got to shove them in a tin can and see how they respond to it. Um, and so Mars One's building an analogue to essentially simulate it as best they can, and that's twofold. It's people understanding themselves but also understanding how they work inside a particular group, who they get along with, who they don't, what their particular habits are. You basically want good housemates. You mm. want people who can work together and live in these environments together and not freak out. Those traditional, again, A-type personalities, they're performing, they're acting in a certain way because this is what they're used to expecting, and yeah. there's actually no-one expecting that from them mm. other than the three other people they've got to try and live with. Yeah. And I think that's why Mars One has not... When they went out with their call for astronauts to... Well, obviously no astronauts have applied, but people to apply to be astronauts, they weren't looking for particular criteria when it came to education. It was more about human qualities. Show me your resilience. Show me examples of adaptability right, and, uh, right. and resourcefulness and so forth. So how, how do you as an individual work within a team and that too? Because it would actually only take one to freak out. Oh. And... and mm. You, you may need to be able to spot that. Are you giving psychological training? Yeah. Will there be an expert? There will be. That's one of the things there that's... There will, mm. but again, the best way to test it is to put people in a simulation mm. and see how they respond. One of the last questions we had for our interview actually was mm. a particularly interesting one. <laughs> we got asked as the final question for our interview, uh, if you were on Mars and there was a rocket that could bring you back after three years, would you take it? And that was kind of... It was testing to see what kind of frame of mind you were in. Were you going there to go and see Mars and then maybe come back? Or were you actually going there because you want to establish a permanent human presence on another planet? I don't know what you answered, but I know for my answer, I basically turned around and said, after all the time, effort, money, all of that, I would hope that I wouldn't get back on the rocket. Mm. But until you're in that situation, yeah. until you've been living on another planet for three years and you're given that choice, you don't actually know for real. And I would be very concerned and seriously question anyone who was utterly convinced that they would know the answer to that That's question true. until they were there. That's the first time I've heard your answer. So okay. Really cool. no. <laughs> um, my, actually, it's funny because my, um, my answer wasn't too dissimilar. My first response was, I don't know. Because I don't know, don't know until I'm in a situation. Uh, and then I said that I, I expected my response would likely be at the time I would, that I would stay because I, I understand that, you know, with such a... In three years, there'd only be eight people there. There'd be two um, crews that'd be arrived. And if I happened to be one of the few that was trained in medical procedures, they're planning to train two people in each crew on, on medical skills, then that leaves a huge risk, yeah. huge risk to that community. And how selfish of me yeah. to decide to come back and wave a flag back here on Earth and leave... 
I like that yours was a bit more positive. The only reason why I turned around and said that I wasn't sure was because I'd had the experience of going and joining the British commandos, mm. and a lot of the guys that you're joining up with, 18, 19, dead set, I'm going all the way through. It's the longest infantry training course in the world. Mm -hmm. The only thing it's equivalent to is probably the French Foreign Legion, mm. and... They do the Legion in 45 days. Royal Marines is eight months of slow grinding hell. And you've basically got these young guys who are going, yep, I'm committed, I'm going all the way through. And you're sending them home after three or four weeks mm. because they, what they expected yeah. is not the reality of the situation. Mm. And so that, that was the only reason yeah, why yeah, I knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, therefore your motivation actually really feeds into the, the psychology and, and the response, isn't it? Oh, so absolutely. You're not leaving for the reason that, that people have left countries in the past to form up new colonies. It's often that's been driven by economic reasons or mm. religious reasons or disharmony at home or a whole mass, you know, plague, pestilence. You're going because you want to go. So you're already in a completely different yeah, framework. that's absolutely right. If you are having a downer, I'm a little fond of a nice Shiraz and a piece of cheese, aren't you <laughs> allowed to actually have cigarettes, wine? Well, I mean, obviously plants grow. So, you know, grapes are a plant. Yeah. Um, quite, so it's wheat and barley and, uh, and many other things that can produce other alcoholic beverages. I think there have been a few people that have, in the astronaut world that have talked about what can be brewed in space yeah. in the past. So I yeah, wouldn't take be surprised. Take potatoes. So that's... Yeah, potatoes. Oh, how cool. They've got, a, they've got a VW Combi and they're making their own moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. And eating well, crickets. Yeah. Making moonshines. And again, we talked about this a little bit earlier on, yep. but... Uh, I have heard our CEO turn around as part of an interview and say that they would prefer to send us with alcohol in a limited quantity rather than have us make it at home. In the same way that, say, Shackleton took yep. rum with them, they had a rum ration when they went to mm. Antarctica, it's better for us to actually take it with us and save it as a special occasion type mm. event rather than us try and manufacture it and poison ourselves with methanol. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I'm really concerned about the way this colony's going here. They'll, they've all gone blind. On a, on, a <laughs> no, that's... on a different angle with it, though, yes. an interesting one, there's a possibility that we might take hemp with us as well. That's a great not fabric. Not to smoke, but yeah. to actually manufacture and actually use to repair a lot of the equipment and things like that. Ah, so right. We were talking about we don't think there's any smokers left in the, no, in the candidate yeah. pool anymore, so I don't think that's a thing that's anyone worried about. Oh, yeah. But actually taking hemp to actually grow might be a possibility. A few of us who have worked in, in areas of medicine, like I worked in the pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. for about 12 years, the sorts of plants that we would need to grow that provide medical benefit as well, salicylates and so forth, yep. so that we can, yes. you know... that's right. You yeah, exactly. Yes. Aspirin and the like. So the choice of, and you mentioned before, the sort of choice of species that we take would need to be considering not mm. just nutritional value, I think, but medicinal right, value medicinal, too. Very valuable, mm. yeah. Yeah. Yes, because certainly you will need painkillers at some stage mm -hmm. for whatever might happen. Fantastic, which brings us to the last topic before we throw open for a few questions to the audience, which is the ethics of challenging the ecology of Mars. And it's easy mm -hmm. to trivialise Mars as being a, you know, a place without ecology as we would think about it, but it still is a pristine environment. There's a number of different philosophies here. There's the go and terraform it and put effectively a biosphere to there and bring everything and make your own oxygen and turn it into a little earth. Or leave it like it is. What's your feelings? What are your ethics here? Personally, because I'm very much into sustainability, I'd like to believe that we could respect the environment as it is. And the Outer Space Treaty 
does provide for that, the Outer Space Treaty, which is a, a UN document from 1967 that mm -hmm. all our spacefaring nations signed, basically says that we can't damage or cross-contaminate another celestial body, and Mars, planet, celestial body. So we, we can't do this, which is awesome. It's a shame we don't have that for this celestial body, but that's another story. So I think that it doesn't mean that these can't change. Laws can be changed. But I believe if we could preserve it in its natural environment, who knows what we might be affecting if we try and change things. But we do change... We change this room just by walking into it tonight. The temperature changes because there's so many of us here. And the same thing when we go on Mars, even if we do try and maintain our footprint to be this big. But I don't think we should terraform it, personally. I think it would be very bold of us to think we can. It goes against every science fiction movie that I've seen, too, because they've usually gone down the path and then something terrible has happened. Mm. And, of course, we don't know that there isn't life there or any mm. traces, so we would recognise it. been mm. contaminating our ability to identify if life was there yep. or if it is there. Why would you go to a whole other planet and try and make it like this? I think Antarctica is probably the best example of what mm. we should be doing. You mentioned the Outer Space Treaty there as well. There is every possibility that there is life under Lake Vostok, under Antarctica, but if we go and drill into that, we're then potentially contaminating it, and so yes. there's things protecting Lake Vostok to make sure that we don't do that. Why would we treat Mars any differently? And from a, like a legal perspective as well, why not try and use it as something that is the province of all humankind mm. rather than we're going to go there and we're going to throw our germs around? I quite like the idea that Mars One is specifically looking at landing on a part of Mars that is boring. Like, it's, <laughs> it's basically the Sahara Desert with nothing out there, very flat, very dull, no complex geology whatsoever because we're not then going to be contaminating and getting mm. our bugs into parts of Mars where they could live and push out native Martian life. It's a really important part of the philosophy here because even if we talked about life contaminants, but coming mm. back to the waste and the, the material waste, mm. when you look at places like Everest, which have been ruined mm. by people climbing it because Indeed. they want to and then scattering their leftover But they leave, don't they? And then they leave, yeah. But if they lived yeah, there, okay. if they lived there, yeah. and I think that's one of the things that attracts me about going one way to Mars... Any time you go somewhere to live, you treat it vastly different than when you just pop in for a That's holiday. Right. Yeah, it's, it, it stops being about your ego and it starts Correct. to be about the place, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, indeed. You, yeah. you have that. You talked yeah. about at the start of this evening about connection to place. Yeah. It develops connection to place. Yeah. So speaking about developing the connection to place, tell us about the um, Outpost Alpha. You've mentioned it a couple of times through mm. here about how you train and practice. So... Do you go to Cooper PD and you've been hanging around in the underground? You, I know you I grew up in Cooper PD. I, I grew up in the outback in the desert and uh, actually on Aboriginal communities. Mm -hmm. So I do have an interesting connection to place and uh, an Fantastic. understanding of the night sky you talked about earlier. I think that some of the simulations that we will go through, those who do get selected, if I'm lucky enough, will be in remote locations. We understand Mars One will start in desert locations that yeah. are not too far from... Still accessible uh, yeah, stuff. Yeah, It's interesting. I did an artist retreat earlier this year. I went to Flinders Island down there in the Bass Strait and the caretaker there turned around and said something really interesting that's incredibly relevant mm. to this. She was saying how artists often go and stay in this one little cabin and anything they were running from comes and sits right next to them. Like if you were on an artist mm. retreat and you were there by yourself in this isolated cabin anything you emotionally are running from 
it's going to catch up with you very quickly. And they do have mm. artists who spend two, three days in that cabin, and they're supposed to be there for a four-week residency. Two, three days, they can't stay there. They have to move up to the main house to be around people again. Whatever Outpost Alpha turns out to be, this simulation that we're building, wherever it is, anything people are running from is going to catch up with them. And they can try and blame it on the three other people they're in the box yep. with. <laughs> but if you swap them out and put them with another group of three people and those problems follow them, guess what? You're the one with the problem. <laughs> it's not the other people. Um, and I think that's yeah. really what the outpost mm. is about. Mm. It's about mm. people working themselves out, seeing who they work with, why they work with those people really effectively, mm. and who can actually form a, the most effective team given the challenges they're going to be facing. The isolation means that people can't yeah. run from stuff that they yeah. otherwise might. And so that really a, comes back to motivation. Yes. Exactly, and emotional intelligence, yeah. really. Yeah. It really is. I mean, how well do you work with other people and how well do you understand yourself within mm -hmm. that sort of environment? Mm -hmm. I like the fact that Mars One is looking to put the crews in isolation for a few months each year and for undeterminate amounts of time. Yeah. That's really interesting. If you know you're coming out in a couple of weeks... You can suck it up. You also yeah. get a psychological impact of the three-quarter effect mm. where you see with Antarctic overwinter crews, three-quarters of the way through their stay, they know when they're coming out, yep. but they're past halfway, but they've still got months ahead, and you see this massive depressive dip at the three-quarter point because they're not there yet. They're not counting down the final days. They are past halfway, but they're also looking ahead going, I've got more of this crap ahead it really annoys people, it upsets and depresses people. And so if you don't know how long you're in there for, you either drop off the deep end really quickly <laughs> or you do something like Alexei Polikov did. Alexei Polikov holds the record for the longest single stay in space. It's like 400 and something ridiculous Crazy. days. Yeah. He got stuck on Mir during the fall of the Soviet Union. He didn't know when he was coming back. <laughs> They tracked his emotional response throughout the 14 months or whatever it was that he was there. He went through a depressive phase in the first month. He stabilised. He went through another depressive phase in the final month when he realised he was coming back mm. and he was going to leave his home behind. Wow. The rest mm. of the time, he flatlined. The rest of the time, he was emotionally stable, didn't have any massive jumps or dips or anything like that, and that's the kind of person you kind of want someone who just adapts to the situation and stays stable. They don't degrade over time. So you're really looking for emotional intelligence, but it doesn't matter about differences in personality types, except for the too much of the alpha. Mm -hmm. In fact, you probably want some diversity mm, there. Absolutely. But you are looking for those characteristics. You talked about emotional intelligence, empathy, those sorts of things, and the honest motivation and not someone who's hiding. So that commercial where people go on Mars One because they're getting away from hay fever, yeah. that's, that's not what you're looking for here. Like. No, no seasonal rhinitis though on Mars. You also will be guinea pigs. I mean, yes. So not only will this be exploratory for you, but everyone will be reading every single thing that you do and you're likely to be front page news. But we'll also be 56 million kilometres away. Yes, yeah, so I like don't have to see that page. So you don't, you don't get to read the advertiser and know <laughs> what Again, they're saying about you. cannot wait to get away from humanity. Sounds great. Never <laughs> going to have to read a newspaper ever again. Like, oh, it'll be amazing. Oh, right. <laughs> Although, I mean, we will... We see images of Mars today, naturally, that the mm. rovers sent yes. and, and the orbiters as well. So there is already internet or the, obviously mm. connection with Mars, which, you know, any colony or settlement would have yeah. as well so we would be able to stay in touch with earth see what's happening on the news just not live but also in a controlled manner yes. so like one of the biggest issues we saw specifically with neil armstrong and, mm. and buzz aldrin 
Vaz unfortunately had a history of alcoholism in his family already. Yep. And so the exposure and the, the whole second man thing, it basically pushed that yeah. really bad. And a lot of folks accused Neil Armstrong of being a recluse. I don't know how true that is, but he did definitely have reclusive tendencies. And he essentially retreated back to his, his farm in Kansas we don't have to deal with that because no. we're not coming back. To me, that's a real benefit. You don't have to face whatever sensationalism I got occur. The guy who did the bomb swipe on the airport for me before I flew over here from Perth saw the, the bag that I've got. It's got my name, Mars One candidate, written all over. And he was like, oh, what was this? Asking me questions about it. And he turned around to me and said, oh, and so when you come back, you know, you'll be super famous. And I'm like, I'm not coming back, buddy. <laughs> um, and at that point, he decided he didn't want to sign up. But, <laughs> but to me, that's yeah, the it, benefit. It's, it's still a deal breaker, isn't it? Yeah, not it's a bit of a back. clangor. But, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. it spins people out, the idea that, like, I've spent mm. 10 years on stage as a comedian and stuff. I'm a natural introvert. I don't get a big benefit out of entertaining yeah. a big crowd. It's lovely that you're all here. Thank you all for coming. But in terms of energy and things like yeah. that, I don't get a big boost out of talking to a big crowd, I quite enjoy writing, I quite enjoy doing all those sort of things. And so the idea of coming back and being applauded and told how wonderful you are because you went to Mars, can't think of anything worse. Keep me there. It sounds great. And, of course, you might not be applauded. I mean, there will be... Yeah, yes. There will always be those looking for the dirt, the difficult stories, the, yeah. you know, the flags of our fathers, guys, again, yeah. with the same thing. They became celebrities that they didn't want to for an act and it, it drove them crazy. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to stop asking questions because I can keep going, <laughs> but we've got some roving mics, so I want to actually give you the chance to ask some questions. We'll start with this young lady here, I think, because the next generation are the ones who will be coming up Absolutely. second time around. How long is it going to take to get there, and what are you going to do on the way there? It takes about seven months to get from Earth to Mars one way, so it's a bit of a hike. It's like getting in the car at, at Easter and not getting out till Christmas time. Imagine that. That's absolutely crazy. So, yeah, what do we do? Gosh. I mean, once we get there, we're going to be stuck for seven months there. We're probably in a space about the same size as this stage, four of us. We'll have a lot more room to stretch out once we get there. For those four people, it's really about us staying alive. We have to repair the life support systems. We have to look after the plants. We basically just have to keep things ticking over mm. until the next group of people turn up two years later. And then maybe we can start exploring further. But we really just have to hold the fort for the first two years. So a lot do, of work. Do you take a, lot a of pack work. of cards? Well, or, uh, <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine playing <laughs> cards in space. They're flicking them around and then zero gravity. <laughs> we have a lot of board game yeah, players a lot of gamers. In, the, mm. in the 100. Mm. Um, and... There's a lot of discussion. The slides that we were looking at earlier on, I use Homer Simpson in part of one of my presentations, and I talk about how we kind of want adventurous couch potatoes. We want people to sign <laughs> up to do something yeah. crazy like go to another planet and then sit on a couch when you get to the other planet and do very little, except when you've got to repair the life support system or you've got to look after the plants, but be quite okay sitting around and doing very little for a long time. I find the one-way, two-word hyphen up there so exciting, but you'd find a lot of people that would find it terrifying. Mm. Is religion being considered as a crutch for that journey? That's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, because faith and different religions do provide a great, I guess, sense of purpose and, and connection for many, many people. And Mars One has said that they don't exclude people of any religious 
background at all. People are, are very welcome to practice whatever their religious faith is. I think that sort of diversity is a good thing to have in the group as well. You know, there's a lot we learn about people and about, uh, about their connection with community. A lot of religious faiths do have aspects of community that are very solid. They provide a lot of security and support for each other. So I think that those sorts of things aren't a bad thing to have in the community. It'd be interesting to see the different ones as they play out, as, the, as Mars One put the different crews together, which are the different religious faiths that are in each crew and how they'll learn from each other. Because one of the exciting things about mm. the whole mission that it's being filmed going through all the training program, we'll learn so much about each other. Mm-hmm. So much. And one of the interesting experiences you and I have just had is mm. we... The reason why this is Future Martians, Diane and I have just basically recorded a podcast interviewing 12 of the... Well, we well, interviewed each, each other, other, but uh, there's also <laughs> 10 other candidates that we spoke to, and learning about each other and having the opportunity mm. to kind of showcase each other has been a really interesting experience. Two of the candidates that I hope we'll get a chance to interview as part of our next series is someone who's quite an ardent Christian and a Sikh candidate as well. Mm. And both of them have actually become... They've become more determined in their faith mm. since they got involved with Mars One than otherwise, uh, which, to me, as someone who isn't really faith-focused at all, was a bit surprising. But in many ways... And one thing I can speak to is that Mars One has made me understand me much better... And I think as long as we understand who we are and mm. why we're motivated for what we are, um, it doesn't matter what strain it takes, as long as you understand it and you respect, respect. each other as part of the process. I think that respect is important. But there is a challenge if you go too far carrying on the question that, that, that you can get extremisms developing mm. through a faith-based approach. And the last thing you want is a yes. Reverend Jim Jones mm. in a Jonestown and you're drinking the Kool-Aid <laughs> after a... You know, a, a couple of years there, because under pressure, mm. you can get greater extremism. I think that the, the, the 10 plus years of training, when we will spend many months in isolation in our, in our small crews of four, will bring a lot of that out. Right. We'll see those sorts of tensions start to come to boil up very quickly, I'm sure, under extreme stress. Do you mm. like Star Trek or Star Wars? And if so, which is your favourite and why? I love both of them, but, but I must admit, Star Wars has always had a stronger connection for me. It was the first film I remember my father taking me to see when I was about seven or eight. And it was here in Adelaide, actually, when the cinemas used to be in Hindley Street. This is back in the um, 78, I think it was, 77, 78. The cinemas were here. And so, and actually, I think the same year, Grease came out too. Also a very important <laughs> movie in my childhood. Yeah. I've got two memories, and it will answer the question for you. Two very clear memories from probably about your age. One is Ewoks being the greatest thing ever. <laughs> the other is that scene from Wrath of Khan with Star Trek where the bug thing goes into the dude's ear. Don't watch it. Don't watch it. Ever. <laughs> I think I was about nine. It scarred me forever. Now, I say that. I love Star Wars, but it's fantasy. As I've gotten older, I've started to really acknowledge and love Star Trek for what it is. I think what Ray Bradbury did was extraordinary. Mm. I kind of wish that I hadn't had that experience when I was younger because I would have appreciated it more. So I probably like Star Trek more. 
I loved episode nine of Star Wars, and I'll fight any of you that think it's terrible. It was amazing. <laughs> but I think Star Trek's actually helping humanity more than Star Wars is. That doesn't mean I don't like Star Wars more, but I think Star Trek's actually a more positive influence on but our it, species. And it's very interesting with Star Trek as well, because when you consider that it was done in the 60s and 70s, yes. it actually had a male-female crew. Yep. It mm. had people who weren't Bruce Willis. um, um, It also had different roles and a far more... Even though it had Captain Kirk, who was usually the hero, Mm, and mm. a couple of sort of odd characters, Bones and so forth. But he had cultural diversity. They they had roles, but they had cultural diversity, Mm -hmm. and they all made... They were part of the Mm -hmm. decision-making. So Captain Kirk would defer to Bones or to Spock. That was very different for the 70s, really, Mm -hmm. when you think of it. So it was quite extraordinary. And that's kind of more the model that you're going for as well, isn't it? than Han Solo going, mm, yeah. me kill, you know. This morning, uh, Elon Musk had a press conference at his yes. factory uh, announcing a Japanese tourist flying around the moon. The tourist has bought the whole BFR ship and is offering free flights for artists. So, cool? Josh, are you going to resurrect <laughs> your koala suit to I'll, jump on board? <laughs> I will clarify that I deliberately set fire to the koala suit in the end of 2015 so that no one would ever make me wear it again. The koala suit's an interesting one, and this goes back to the role that artists play. I dressed up in a giant koala suit because I actually had stories from the military to share that I, as, a, as me, couldn't share. There'd been a couple of specific incidents that had happened, especially when I was with the commandos, that I'd never spoken to people about. Uh, Friends of mine nearly drowning, nearly dying of hypothermia, all sorts of fun stuff that I'd literally never spoken about, and yet me standing on stage and dressing up as a giant koala provided a way for me to share those stories in a character that detached me enough from it. Now, the beauty of what is happening with BFR, with this amazing loop around the moon, is that you're going to have people who, rather than using art as a way to detach themselves from an awful experience, they'll actually be able to connect with that experience and connect all of you to it through the process as well. So I cannot wait to see what happens when we launch... We launch when space... I love that it becomes we, we, we too. Yeah. Like when we yeah. went to the moon. Like, it's that... <laughs> It becomes something that all of us connect with, and I, I'm going to be amazed by the experience of what nine, potentially nine different perspectives on a trip around the moon, the first time it's happened since 1972, is going to be extraordinary. There's two people that I think definitely should be on board it. One of them's Neve Shaw, uh, one of the most amazing science communicators I've ever met, a lady based out of Ireland. I've worked with Neve for years, and a Mexican guy by the name of Nahum, and both of them I've worked with through the years. They are extraordinary artists, and their ability to not just communicate and share art, but their actual ability to connect with human beings and share what the experience is like. I don't know anyone else on the planet who's capable of doing that the way those two are. I think art is so important and part of our our culture, and that's one of the things. Mars One selection process, not everybody who's in the 100 has a science degree. There are people who have artistic backgrounds. We have someone who's an um, accomplished violinist. We have a, uh, a pop rock singer from Japan. You know, there's, there's, a, um, there's an artist from the Philippines. It's a, extraordinary. How, how do we see ourselves? How do we represent ourselves uh, through, through our culture? And I think art plays an important mm. part of that. Are you planning on doing mining on Mars? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, Are yeah. you planning mining on Mars? So... It gets really complex really quickly. (laughs) We need to mine on Mars in order to produce the oxygen, to get the water and then produce the oxygen that we need, but that's to sustain us. 
we then have to ask the question, do we own that? Because if you're mining it up, do you own yep. those resources? So there's a lot of legal issues around a lot of it. Um, I think we're working on the principle that we can mine enough to sustain human life. Is there much point going to Mars of digging up? Yeah, that's right. Is it economic? There's actually a lot more benefit to, if you want to talk about mining, it's actually, there's a lot more benefits to going to the moon for something like that, maybe uh, mining the ice on the South Pole. Uh, Rather than bring it all the way back to Earth, you actually use that water in space. You can run an electric current through it, separate it into hydrogen and oxygen, and you've basically got really cheap rocket fuel out in space. Rather than trying to take that rocket fuel from the surface of the Earth up into space, it's already there. So your ability to go further out into the solar system is much better by using that water rather than bringing fuel from Earth. But I don't think there's much benefit to us mining on Mars. Yes, it's, it's something that's thrown around a lot, but then you think, well, what are you mining? Iron? We've got plenty of iron here. Reason, what, yeah. What's the function? Mm. That's and the exactly cost. Right. The cost mm. to get it, it back to Earth is ridiculous. If you want to mine iron in space, the asteroid belt's there as well. Like, mm. again, it comes back to treat Mars like Antarctica, protect it. it. We've got all these other resources to access instead. So, yeah, mm. I hope not. It's good. Yeah, agree. Uh, question for Diane. Hi, Diane. Uh, just a question about medical support. You mentioned that there would be crew members tra- trained in medical procedures. Mm-hmm. It sounded like they're going to be uh, people cross-trained, other disciplines cross-trained right, in, yes. in medicine without a specific medical officer. So, you know, for a thousand-day return mission, it's probably easy to predict what are the likely medical outcomes, but for mm-hmm. a non-return, for the term of your natural life, uh, anything mm-hmm. could happen. So how do you plan for that? How do you mitigate that? What resources do you take and what happens? How do you deal with critical illness on Mars? Yeah, and that's, you know, big questions to, to have resolved. I mean, Mars One, while they say at the moment that they'll be training each crew with two people in medical procedures, but also psychologically trained as well, someone has psychology or counselling, but to have that support system as well, so online modules and the like too, and a lot of that training during the, the 12... Uh, 10, 10 to 12 years worth of training will occur for both personal and for team as well, so that we do become a support unit for each other. Um, There are a number of the candidates who do have some medical background. We have an emergency medicine specialist, um, hospital specialist. Combat um, medic. So combat Combat medic. medic. Um, We have a dentist. (laughs) So we do have quite a range of different medical backgrounds within the hundred that can naturally, once you do have an an understanding of of physiology and chemistry and so forth, you can learn some of the other aspects over 10 years. Um, So, and as the crews increase in their size, the field of medical expertise grows as well. So it it will be those early crews that will be quite Spartan very Spartan. It'll be, it really will be like wilderness medicine. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's got wilderness medicine training, you're a goer in the first few crews. I am so envious of you too, first of all. <laughs> um, and discussing emotional intelligence, what are some of the most challenging things you anticipate experiencing in this experience, in this journey? Mm-hmm. And how do you just plan to face that? Is it just through trial and error and seeing how you go as people? Or is there a psychologist in the 100 or any psychologist who uh, psychological training or anything like that happening? There, there will be um, through the training program. Psychological training will be a part of it. Um, I mean, I don't know what Josh's experiences have been, but uh, when I first got shortlisted, I started 
uh, working on my own psychological training to become as resilient as possible. So I, I started working with a psychologist and developed my own sort of resilience toolkit kind of thing and started working on isolation, um, grief and loss, um, um, self-doubt, all the sorts of things that I thought, well, what are, the th- what are the mental health challenges that astronauts face and how can I start to be more Mars-ready today? Uh, and it's actually had a significant impact on my life already on, on this planet, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Bonus. <laughs> more Earth-ready. Yeah. But it's, it's been really interesting. So I've, I've tried to think about the sorts of people and situations where extreme isolation occur and try and learn from those sorts of people. So I've, I've met and spoken with um, submariners, people who've worked in Antarctica, uh, people who've been in, um, well, gosh, in solitary confinement, in prison, um, stuff like that. So people who really do have experiences that aren't part of my normal every day to try and see how they do that. Why do you want to get up every day? What keeps you positive and, and moving forward? I want to put a little bit of a downer on this. Three quarters of the hundred odd that you've got at the moment are not going to go to Mars. Do you or do the people who are looking after you have some sort of preparation for the disappointment of not going to Mars? I've had to go through this a few times. We'll have a second round. There'll be reopening for applications. There'll be the opportunity to reapply. But each phase we've gone through where we've cut the group down, you have to prepare yourself for the idea that you may not get through it. And again, I can't speak on Diane's behalf, but I know for me, one of the coping mechanisms that I've used for that is actually to start going, what can I do instead? If I don't get through this next thing, what will I do instead? And I start planning out these ideas of what I could do instead. And before the most recent cut where we went down to 100, I actually had to stop myself from doing that. I needed to recognise that I'm committing to this and I'm actually involved with something that's way bigger than me It does not matter if I don't leave the planet. I don't care about whether or not this is me or not. I actually drilled back to why I got involved with this in the first place, and I was literally angry that we as a species hadn't been brave enough to go and explore another planet, that we weren't willing to commit to go one way. So when I come all the way back to that, I have to acknowledge it doesn't matter if it's me, it doesn't matter if it's Diane or any of the 100 it matters that we as a species actually go and explore and become a dual planet species. And that's the motivator for me. That's the why for me. So if I'm not the right fit, our CEO Mm. in particular actually has acknowledged over the last couple of years, he had to come to terms with the fact he started the entire endeavour with the hope that he would go and he's had to acknowledge that he's not the right psychological profile for it. He's really good at setting the company up. He's really good at doing what he's doing. He's not the kind of person you actually need to be on that first crew. And so there's a whole lot of self-reflection to recognise, am I the right person? Every step of the way, I've found that I'm, I, I'm finding more of me. I'm actually... The things that make me who I am really suit this and they seem to be getting better and better all the time but I also have to acknowledge if there's someone else out there who's better qualified send them I talk about it regularly yeah. there's no way I'll be the first person on Mars because why would you have another white dude be the first one to walk <laughs> on another world we're going to have two men and two women how much more can you do for women in science and technology to have one of them be the first to walk on Mars rather than some ginger idiot so it's not going to be me. Like, and that's great. I think that's fantastic because it's about us as a species doing something rather than it being an ego thing for me personally. I think one of the points that you know, sort of sits around this too, that the hundred of us have become very close. Uh, we, we keep in contact quite regularly and 
and a few of us have been speaking about, well, if you know, so-and-so doesn't get chosen or so-and-so does, we can imagine just all standing there going, well, I'm not going to go unless <laughs> he goes. So, so it, but that's lovely. And, and a few of us have flagged to Mars One that we are really quite a tight unit as the 100 already, so um, it would behoove them to think about how they can keep us in the fold in such a way that, that supports the mission. So that's, that's been communicated to Mars One to make sure that they, they don't lose this positive energy that people have towards this extraordinary endeavour. Um, and I guess... You know, just following on what Josh is saying, my own thoughts on if I don't get selected or if I don't get to go to Mars or whatever, um, I've always tried to live a very purposeful life and, and the, the work that I do in sustainability, especially in food waste, uh, um, we were talking earlier, I'm, uh, I've been advising behind the scenes to the War on Waste program for the last two years and the food, food waste sort of stuff. And I was actually in episode three this year, so you might have seen me for my two seconds of fame <laughs> being interviewed by Craig Brewcastle. Um, so my journey on this planet would still be to do something that makes it a bit better if I don't get to go to the other one. The flip side of that question, which is what does success look like? Mm. So when you're 87 and, and on your, your sort of earth-made bed up there, surrounded by your favourite crickets, um, how, how would you then think this has been a success? For me, I think success is about the journey. You know, what do we learn? I would like to hope that success is how we have changed, not just me personally, but how we, how we has, how this planet changes through the extraordinary endeavour of doing something so unique as a united humanity, yeah, change hmm. for me is success. Fantastic. And Josh? The words contact light. So when they landed on the moon, the first part of that, that crude spacecraft had a little probe that dropped down on one of the legs and it made contact with the ground. Um, I think that the moment we become a dual planet species, it's going to shift the way that we see ourselves as a species here on this planet. Mm. Um, it's my hope that in about 15 years' time, you'll have kids that are born today get taken out to a park somewhere at night, see a little red dot in the sky and get told people live up there. Mm. And it didn't matter where they came from, what their background was, what they'd done before, they wanted to help make humanity a dual planet species. So that's success to me, like literally having a crude uh, spacecraft on the surface of Mars, hopefully with four living astronauts inside. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Look, what a, what a fantastic way to finish. Could you join me, please, in thanking Diane and Josh Thank for you. an outstanding presentation. So we're done. I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> Hawk Centre. Hawk Centre is done. Um, what an amazing night. Yeah, it's always full on. I love the relentless questions. Like, we always get cornered after an event like that. Yeah, okay, what's the time now? Like, it's, it's 20, 20 to 10. 10. <laughs> And what time did we start tonight? Six? Six, and then we finished at quarter past seven. Quarter past seven. Yeah. Have you drawn a breath yet? No. I actually, I nibbled something as we were walking down to the How hotel just that? then. I don't know. You just spoke with your mouth full. <laughs> just just non-stop. <laughs> I didn't eat anything when people were asking yeah, me questions. it's impossible. Um, yeah, no, amazing. Awesome questions from, from kids. Yeah. I love the kids' questions. It was great. And they were so excited to ask them. And, so, and it's often the case, you know, children are not so keen to put their hands up in a room full of adults and it was just a, such a delight well they were being encouraged too like and that was nice the kids who were a bit shyer they were being picked out of the crowd of being like there's a little hand there we'll yeah. ask this one 
uh, and that was really wonderful to see that because ultimately they're the ones that we're really tr- I'm trying to reach at least. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it, um, like one of the the young girls I met tonight who is is trying to change some of the things that are happening at her school on waste. You know, and and this is the future generation. If the, if we can inspire these kids to do something extraordinary, whether it's in sustainability or science or whatever it is, this is the future of our yeah. not just our nation but our world. Yeah, I I said it to a few people tonight. Um, I not a huge fan of crowds, not a huge fan of lots and lots of people or even speaking that much, but I'm quite proud of the fact that we've spoken to about 120,000 kids in the last five six years, and that that's got to make an impact and people listening to this podcast as well like it, it you have no idea the impact that you might be making so yeah yeah and i just think about some of the, the questions that we had and discussions with with people afterwards and during the evening there was a strong theme for me that came out around around the the human condition and the, obviously the questions about technology and a few things like that that came I'm sure you had some personal ones around that but that human element of stuff everyone's interested in the story and like they're interested in our story but they're also interested in like I said the human condition the human experience of what it would be like for us to be a dual planet species and that's the coolest part of all of this mm. and it's such a delight being a part of like the, the Mars one um, team and that you know Mars 100 who are all people who have got the same sort of vision in their own way you know yeah. think about you know the, the different po- people we've spoken to on the on the podcast so far everyone has their own different motivations there's that re- the, there is a core sort of idea that we care about going to another planet or mm. care about becoming a dual planet species but every single one of us have got our own little our it's almost like a personality, our own little fingerprint on how we're going to approach it and what we're going to do and how we engage. And that, I guess, is part of the story as well. Yeah, and I hope that everyone's enjoyed uh, listening to the podcast version of a live a live yeah. feed from us <laughs> tonight. It's definitely a bit different, but we'll see how it turns out. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, the Future Martians live for the first time. Hello. It's not, uh, not quite what we were expecting to originally, but, hey, it's how it rolls. Hopefully many more. So, yeah. yeah. So keep tuning in and who knows what'll come. Cheers for listening, folks. And there you have it, the very first live event for the Future Martians podcast. A huge thanks to Diane as always for being so wonderful to work with and having such incredible insights as to what it means to be a candidate for a one-way mission to Mars. Massive thanks to Chris Daniels for his incredible questions and keeping us on our toes throughout the entire presentation. And also huge thanks to Jacinta, Renee and everyone from the University of South Australia for hosting such an incredible event and Radio National for recording it. Very special thanks as always to Population of Mars for providing all the music that you'll hear on this podcast. You can hear more at soundcloud.com backslash P-O-P-O-F Mars. I'm Josh Richards and you've been listening to the Future Martians podcast.